Good morning, Faith Fellowship. Good morning to those joining us online as well. We miss you. Can I say that to everybody who's, uh, who's out there online-wise? Uh, we love the fact that uh, it seems to be progressing in the world such that things are getting closer to normal. Right? It seems like forever since we've been in this new normal, wearing these masks. And I thank everybody for doing that. But those that are at home, come on back. <laughs> right? We are wearing masks. We are being safe. Uh, you really miss a lot. Rob and I were talking about it before church. But there's Barna research that just came out that said for the first time in history, the United States has less than 50% church attendance. Right, so I think when you read the word and you understand maybe where things are heading, you come to grips with the fact that we as Christians, especially in the U.S., no longer enjoy that majority status that comes with that. Right, we and now we really need to be cognizant as the day comes near, as it says, right, as we move forward, that persecution can be a real thing here. That we have. So all of that brings my mind back to the verse in Hebrews that says, right, let us not give up meeting together, right, as some are accustomed to doing, but encourage each other all the way up to and through those last days. And if the world seems to be getting you down, right, turn off the news. That's the first thing, right? But the second thing about it, is understand that you have a God that is sovereign and all things work according to his plan. And let's come together with the believers in the group and the body to encourage each other through these times. Amen, right? Awesome. Well, today we are continuing in our Acts of the Apostles series and we'll be primarily in chapter 22 today. So Acts 22, if you want to turn in your Bibles there... You'll be ahead of the game. I know uh, many of you use your phone, and I love, I do the same thing and use my phone. I'm going to encourage you, whether you have that or your written Bible, take some notes today. Right? What I'm going to do is try to go through these really verse by verse and exegete for you or basically kind of talk to and elaborate on all the things that are going on. It's a wonderful wonderful example of Paul standing strong in the midst of things going on in the world, right? And so we'll look for that today as we talk. But first, I also want to acknowledge that this is the first message since Easter and the first message back to our series in a couple of messages. If you're like me, sometimes I find it hard to remember what I had for lunch yesterday. <laughs> so I think we could all benefit just a little bit from a grounding of where we're at and what we're doing here. I'll give you kind of the quick overview now that where we left off in Acts, Paul knew and had said goodbye to his friends, his elders, and he was journeying back to Jerusalem, really towards the end of his message, having heard prophecy that he's going to be bound, and then proclaiming himself that he is ready to be bound and he's ready to even die for the ministry if that's what God calls him. And I think that that in itself is an amazing statement for us as we read these. 
But it is also our example to think about. So strong was Paul's faith towards the end of his ministry. All the experiences that we've covered, that he knew that if he's in the care of that sovereign God, he's ready to let things happen as God would will it. Okay, so as we look today, one of the things as I read through here kind of takes me back, and I'm going to date myself a bit here, but when I read through there, how many people in here remember an old American Express commercial and their full marketing pitch that said, membership has privileges? Everybody remember that? Right, that membership has privileges. Good, I guess I'm not that old when I think about that. But the gist of the commercial was, if you're an American Express card holder, there are certain privileges that you have that no one else has. And so as we look into Acts 22 today, I want you to sort of think the same way, but not over American Express membership, but over citizenship. And I want you to think of it as citizenship has its privileges. And we're going to go through three citizenships of Paul's ministry that you'll see. Now, I'm also going to admit to you up front that two of those citizenships are really easy to pick out, right? So look for the third citizenship, and we'll circle back on that near the end of the message. Okay, before I get started, let's bow our head and commit our time together here in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, amidst this world and this crazy world, we do thank you that you are sovereign. Father, we pledge our trust in you, and today we come and sit ourselves at your feet, the feet of your Holy Spirit, to teach us. Help these scriptures, Father, to speak deeply to us, and have your Holy Spirit bring those scriptures to us in a very personal way. For each person sitting in here and gathering with us today, whether in the building or, on, or online, have their own cares, they have their own thoughts. They have their own place in the development, and you know all about them. Scripture tells us you count every hair on their head. Father, would you show yourself mighty in everyone's life, and today have these scriptures speak so clearly. Help people just put aside the distractions, Father, and be blessed by the blessing we know you want to give them. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, where we start the story, Paul has traveled to Jerusalem, already knowing the prophecy that he would be bound by the Jews and by his own words, ready to be imprisoned and even to death. Now, when he arrives, it may have been even worse than he expected. Right? The Jews recognized him and they mobbed him. And when you think about a mobbing, I mean, this had all the makings. They were striking him, beating him, pushing him in a wild frenzy, right? I envisioned Paul at the bottom of this mob being kicked, right, beat. Not exactly maybe what he had expected, especially going back to the place where he spent so much time in his growing up, in his education. This process of a serious beatdown may have led to Paul being outright killed, but they were interrupted by the Roman military tribune. Now, when you read that, it may be a little hard to understand from today's context. It may be better understood for when you see that word 
tribune or Roman tribune to think the chief of police. He was a military tribune in charge of usually a garrison or two in that area. In Jerusalem, knowing it was big, he would have been pretty big. And the tribune and that garrison would have been in charge of policing the environment. So it's really you know, fair of us to say he was the chief of police. Now, he brought his soldiers with him when he heard the mob and got news of the mob. And he had to remove Paul, it says, because of the violence of the mob. They were on their way to the barracks, police precinct, right, when Paul makes a simple request. So let's pick up in Acts 21, 37 to 40. But Bill, you said today's message is on Act 22. <laughs> Why do you have me in 21? Well, like so many of these great stories that are imbibed in there, the chapter demarks really doesn't do the story justice. And so what I've done is just back this up just a little bit more so you can really get the gist of where the, the story begins. In Acts 21, 37 to 40 says this, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, he being the tribune, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying... So let's start right there and pull out a couple of things. So verse 37, he said to the Roman tribune, language was very important at this time. You need to understand, where is this, do you know Greek, coming from? In this story, there's really three languages involved. You have the Hebrew that you know at the end that Paul's going to be speaking in. But what about this Roman tribune? What would have been his primary language that he spoke? Latin. So he's speaking Latin. Paul's got Hebrew here. Why Greek? Well, many of you may know, if you go back or had Christian studies in the background, there's this thought or this test question, we'll say, that says, why did God in our understanding, choose the time of Christ's birth to be when it was? Anyone know the answer, remember? It's three reasons, you say, that had to happen. It was the very first time in history where three things came together in order to lay the foundation for the gospel impact and spread to all the earth. First off, the Romans were pretty much conquering the world. Okay? And they had this strip of land right there in Jerusalem that connected two major continents. Right? And they had that whole area. So the Romans built what? Roads. Right? That's what they were known for. They built these roads everywhere so that people could walk and mingle and mix. 
So there's the first. The second was the Greeks and their language. The language of the Greeks became the trade language. So anyone that wanted to trade goods and services, anyone that wanted to take stuff and move it along those roads to another providence found a common language in the Greek. And so the Greek here is super important from the standpoint of speaking common. So Paul says, can I speak to the people? Put yourself in the tribune's place right now. You walked in on a mob. They were beating and kicking him. But he says, can I speak to the people? The only reason that you think that you would let him do that is maybe there was a misunderstanding. Right? Maybe Paul can clear that misunderstanding up. You're the police officer. Right? You're involved. Okay. Go ahead. But... I'm not sure that the tribune really expected him to start in Hebrew. <laughs> so now we have the tribune standing by. Now I want you to notice Paul's citizenship granted him the right to speak to the people in their tongue. Right? As one of them. He could have spoken Greek. Most of them would have known Greek. But he chose to speak Hebrew to identify with them, to show his citizenship, to find that commonality. Paul uses this to speak to the crowd and to give him his testimony. I think it's pretty interesting to note. Right? And it is a little bit of an extrapolation, so this is Bill saying, <laughs> but I think it's pretty interesting to note that after being beat down, after possibly being drug off, right, knowing the prophecy, knowing you may go to death, the number one concern on Paul's mind is just let me give my testimony. Right? It's pretty amazing. It's the first thing he asked for, please. Just let me speak to the people before anything happens to me. So let's see what Paul had to say. He starts off in verse 1, 22-1. It says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Right? Their ears. Wait a minute. Who is this guy? Right? Let's hear this. We're hearing our language spoke out. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I love the statesman in Paul. I've always admired both his academic achievements as well as his statesmanship in addition to the primary admiration of his faith. Right? But in those areas of the statesman, he starts off by finding that commonality or connection point with all. Right? I'm one of you. <laughs> Listen to me. Right Before you go on and accuse me, let me just defend myself. He says, I'm right here. I was born with you. I'm zealous just like you. It's really interesting. He says, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Right? Some might say that was pretty assumptuous of him. Right? He's making that assumption that they're all zealous. I would say if they're kicking you over their <laughs> belief of God and, and their religion, then they're zealous. <laughs> Plain and simple. It's probably easy to find. But he addresses them 
not as gentlemen, right? Men of Jerusalem. He addresses them as brothers and fathers. I think there's something to be said in that greeting right off the bat, right? Brothers, he's affirming his kinship. Fathers, he's appealing, right, to them in their family structure. And I'm one of your family, right, in these very patriarchal societies. Now, he cements it by speaking Hebrew. He says, I was a Jew born in Tarsus and brought up in Jerusalem. Now, some of you may go, Tarsus, Tarsus is just another name like that's in the Bible. What's the significance of that? Tarsus was the capital province of Cilicia. It was a very important trade city to the Roman Empire, and it was the scene of the first meeting between Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Okay? Paul starts by telling the crowd, I may come from a different region, but I am a true Jew by faith and by education. And by education, it's inferred that he was trained at one of the highest schools by the famous Gamaliel himself. So who was Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a first century Jewish rabbi and a leader in the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was perhaps thought to be the greatest Jewish law teacher of that day. He was a Pharisee meaning he was a lawyer, and a grandson of the famous rabbi Hillel. So not only did did Paul study under the best teacher that you could under the law, and in the best school, in the very place, right, the center of worship and place for it, but he comes from a long family or studying under a long family of great teachers. Right? There truly was no better that Paul could have studied under in Jerusalem. So right away, he starts out right, establishing his credentials. But that's not the only significance here. Paul and Peter brushed up against Gamaliel back in Acts 5 when they were standing trial, and it was Gamaliel's judgment that swayed the tribunal. Now, I mentioned I have a hard time remember what I had for lunch, so I don't expect any of us to remember all the way back to five when we had it. So let me cover here a little bit for you. And we'll jump back. In Acts 5.30, right, keep in mind, Peter and Paul are standing before the tribunal, and it goes through a back and forth where they're asking them to renounce. They said, I cannot help but do this, and I'm going to do what's right in God's eyes, right? not what's right in men's eyes. So the tribunal was very whipped up again. They finish by saying, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Right? If you're a skillful attorney, might not be the best way to accuse the judge and get on the judge's bad side. But that's exactly what they did here for the sake of truth. And then it says of the Sanhedrin, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he had them removed. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. If this plan 
or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, right? Extremely wise. And I will give that as advice for all of us today. As I mentioned, if you're fretting about things in life and things can kind of get overwhelming to you when you see all of these things, keep in mind, if it is of God, there's no stopping it, right? If it's not of God, it will fail. At the point of this, as you read through, they also go through a litany of uprisings that had happened and never took hold. Right? So they had examples of that happening. You probably know of examples in everyday life where that happens. Right? Spend some time here and then you'll know that things change rapidly and you can think back 10 years ago and it's very different than today. Things you worried about 10 years ago came and went. So Gamaliel showed his wisdom that day and spoke those very true words. I think it's a very cool twist when you think about the fact that between Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 22, there's about 30 years have passed. Right, so that time way back when, now Paul is standing in front of them. Now think about the statement of Gamaliel's in that context. There was Paul 30 years ago being released by the Sanhedrin, saying that if Jesus, if this Jesus stuff is untrue, it won't last, right? And now Paul is standing before them as if to say, it did last and it's not going away. Paul goes on with his testimony and his witness. In verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. What is Paul doing? He's confessing. He's confessing, look, I was a murderer. It's Paul's a second here. How antithetical, how different, is that from some of the rock star preachers that you can see out there on the internet today? Right? How different is it that those preachers who would stand up and say they're great, they're studied, they're knowledgeable, they know all of this stuff, listen to me, I know the right way, versus Paul who says, how's a murder? Right? Nothing of me. There's no glory stealing right, going on in Paul's ministry. Now, it's also interesting when Paul confesses that he was a murderer in that if you think into the Old Testament, Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. What's the lesson there? God can use who he chooses and who he renews. I thank God that he doesn't engage in the cancel culture that we see today. In fact, the cancel culture is actually antithetical and unchristian. It's unbiblical. It's not the way in God's character that he acts. Right? Cancel culture says that you should be canceled, discredited, discarded, invalidated if there's something in your past. Christian culture says God is slow to judge and quick to forgive. 
that no matter how much bad you have done in your past life, Christ died for you and you can repent today and make a U-turn and be reborn into a new life with him. It's a very different message. Never was this more evidenced right, than the thief on the cross. Now, we just covered and went through Good Friday, right? The thief on the cross right next to him, presumably not a good person his entire life, right, is on the cross, condemned to die right next to Jesus, and he turns to Jesus and says, what is a faith statement? Remember me today, right? When you go to be with your father, remember me. And Jesus says, surely I tell you, you will be with me in heaven for that. Now, I don't mind confessing to you that as I was growing up and learning the scriptures and reading through there, that used to make me mad because <laughs> I was kind of a rule follower, kind of a justice guy, right? And I put all my energy and effort into following the rules. And I was the kind of guy that would go around following the rules and be grumpy about following the rules. <laughs> Can anybody identify? Right? I wasn't really experiencing joy about following the rules. I felt like it was a burden to follow the rules. So when I heard that, what? This guy goes his whole life not having to follow the rules and then in one minute, just one confession accepts Jesus can turn around. Yes, that's the gospel, right? That's the true gospel that we have before us in the Bible. You don't earn your way into heaven. So if you're not earning your way into heaven, and this is a gift freely from God himself, right? Bought and paid for by his son, and what does it matter what you've done to this point? Then in verse 5, while Paul is identifying with the Jews and confessing his guilt, he's also implicating and pronouncing guilt on the listeners. I love this part, right? He says, the high priests were the ones who actually sent Paul to prosecute. So look at this, right? If you go right here in the 5, he says, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I just get the biggest kick out of this. And maybe it's my stereotypical heritage. But to me, this is like the mob hitman, right? Confessing to the boss and the godfather Right, that he was a hitman. <laughs> Think about that. He basically is sort of like, hey, Giuseppe, you remember when you told me to take out four fingers, Joey? Right, I did it. I was a good guy. Right now he sleeps with the fishes. It's kind of absurd when you think about it. But it certainly is not in the book of how to win friends and influence people when you're making a defense. Which is why I said I don't really think Paul was making a defense. He's presenting a witness. <laughs> now in verses 6 to 10, Paul goes on to tell of his encounter with Jesus specifically. He says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, 
whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So Paul's encounter started with literally a light from heaven. Now, all of us, and I would dare say very few of us, have had that experience of an actual light from heaven, but all of us have experienced a figurative light from heaven during our conversion. That light leads us to greater understanding. That light is at that point of conversion when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and reveals many things to us from the truth of heaven. The truth about you, who you are, who you were, who you are, and who you should be. To the truth about Jesus, who he was, who he is, and who he should be to you personally. To the truth about him and everything that he will reveal to you the rest of your Christian life. An encounter with Jesus always illuminates you with these things, as well as confronts you with a choice with what to do with that illumination. Now these verses, we see that what Paul did is he fell to the ground, proclaimed Jesus as Lord, meaning the master of his life, that's what that term means, right? It means he wasn't only expecting Jesus to be resident in his life. He was expecting Jesus to be the president of his life and tell him exactly what to do, how to follow, where to go. And then he asked simply and humbly, what shall I do, Lord? It's a great example for all of us. But Paul goes on. In verse 12... It says, and one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That renewal, right, is part of his testimony. In verse 14, we see this. The God of our fathers has appointed you. Notice, right, when Ananias talks to him, he doesn't say, oh, well, for you have seen the light. We hear that phrase a lot, right? Ananias, being a holy man, recognizes right off the bat who's in the beginning of this, who's at the origin, right? Who's responsible for Paul's conversion? It wasn't Paul. He was zealous. He was out murdering, right? It was God in every conversion. God is the one who appoints. But then there's this term, righteous one. And it harkens back to 1 Peter 3, 18, this righteous one. If you're looking in the King James Version, I always have all ESV, but if you're looking in the King James Version, it, it uses the just one, 
right? And I always liked that in King James because I thought that was sort of like this play. He's the just one, and he's just one way to get to heaven. Right? So I always thought that was a cool little play. But back here in 1 Peter 3.18, we see, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I feel like Paul's just driving home again, though, with his testimony, right? I'm not the righteous, right? I'm the unrighteous. It's the righteous one who can cover my sin. It's the righteous one who pays for me. Acts 7 52, there was one other person that's worth noting who used the exact same title. Notice it's capitalized here. And that's Stephen, right? The first martyr. The one who Paul stood by holding his coats of the people who stoned him. He said, which of the prophets, this is Stephen saying, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. All right, Stephen didn't mince words either. He called it like he saw it. But Paul goes on with his testimony in verse 17. It says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So this is the first time 30 years ago, right? Paul definitely wanted to go to Jerusalem. He says that I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul shares that he was almost pleading with God to speak to the Jews in Jerusalem 30 years ago. Right? The earlier, younger Paul was so sure of himself here, maybe of his oratory and legal abilities, right, that he could convince them that Jesus was God. After all, if he could believe it, then they should believe it. It's really a common mistake many of us make, right, when witnessing we think it's the skill of our argument or how we present it or the timing or the example we provide. It's really not, right? Ephesians 1 tells us that in love, he, being God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That means that not one sinner ever has been converted apart from God's will, right? If God doesn't will it first, the sinner's not going to be converted. So why do we, right, plead with people to accept Christ and then somehow look internally or feel bad about ourselves when they don't? I mean, there's a real answer. The answer is because you care so much about that other person. You know what, how important it is that they do that. You know those benefits, right? You understand what it is to be a child of God. So I get that piece. But why are we beating ourselves up? Our time should be spent in prayer to God, to the Holy Spirit. If there's somebody in your life that you've been praying for in the conversion, keep it up. 
right? Maybe there's somebody you've been just trying to get with all the time and you're constantly just, you know, talking to them, talking at them, it seems like sometimes, right? They're not engaging. Maybe it's a coworker at work that you've become a real pain to. They know you're there, right? Spend your energy, your time, and your effort in petition for them before the Father. It'll put your heart right, right? And nothing is going to happen unless the Father changes them first. And be there, ready, when God calls you. Next, in verse 21, this is where Paul gets cut off. (laughs) So he's had his word up to this point. And in 21, you see it says, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And 22 says, Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So right up to that word, what word? Gentiles. Right? The Jews had a big problem with the Gentiles from the very beginning. And Paul gets cut off. Right? The Jews hated the Gentiles. They wouldn't admit it, but they did. Right? They wanted that exclusive chosen peopleness to God. They didn't want to share that out. Their religion taught them that they were special. Jesus said they were not special. Right? Their religion taught them that you had to follow the law and earn your way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jews believed themselves as possessing privilege, meaning they thought themselves better than all the other people. They were racists and nationalists. Right? Contrast this with the Christian message that we have today, which is uniquely anti-racist and anti-nationalist. It says that one day, all nations, every tribe, every tongue will worship Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, or where in the world you live, or what station of life you come from, or what horrible things you have done in your past. You're my brother and sister in Christ. And we share citizenship in this holy nation and royal priesthood. Here and now. Now, merely suggesting this was enough for the Jews to want to murder Paul. In verse 23, the Jews made quite a scene. But now, it says, And as they were shouting and throwing all of their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, right, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this we got to go back to the languages here. Think about it. You almost forgot about this tribune, right? Paul's talking in Hebrew. The tribune doesn't have an idea or word about what he's saying. All he knows is, wow, things seem to be going good. Everybody's kind of quiet. They're listening to Paul. Hmm, everybody's settled down. Maybe this thing's going to work after all, right? And then all of a sudden, wah, things just go crazy, right? Throwing dust in the air, throwing off their clothes, ripping, tearing, just making noises, to get him out. He's like, okay, we're going with plan A. I'm getting him out of here. He's going down to the precinct, right? We'll get to the bottom of this. Makes a lot of sense. Now, in verse 25, it says, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. 
When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man's a Roman citizen. Now you can almost bank on the fact that Paul says this now in Greek. Right? Because they understand him. The Roman centurion understands instantly what he's saying and the magnitude of it. Paul has basically just told him that he's a Roman by birth and a Jew by faith. Roman citizenship in that day had its privileges. You can't beat a Roman citizen without him being condemned. Rome was a republic and governed by laws first and foremost. It's actually the model for our nation's government. The reason our Congress has a bicameral system or both the House and Senate. Now Plato spoke about the differing forms of government and he theorized that all governments go through this cycle. Plato, way back then, a Greek philosopher. He talked about this cycle and I don't subscribe particularly to Plato and many of the things that he has, but this is pretty interesting. Plato said that governments and form of government that is a republic always starts out governed by law. Then he said it moves to a democracy, an oligarchy, and a tyranny. And I'll explain that in a second. But first I want to ask, what kind of government are we in the United States today? What do we say? I heard republic. Anybody say democracy? Yeah, it's a trick question. We're a democratic republic. <laughs> right? But most people don't understand that. The republic part, we are governed by our constitution. So we've heard people say we're a constitutional republic, which is also true. But we have aspects of democracy. But anyway, Plato's theory here was that, that there is this degradation, right? The society that will kind of eat itself and change in this cycle. And the cycle, he said, is you start out with a government that's a republic by law. Then pretty soon you go to a democracy with the will of the people really governing what's going on. He says, but the problem with the will of the people is it becomes mob rules, right? And what we know is that the very best of people are also the minority in every situation, right? The average is really the best of the worst and the worst of the best. So when the average is literally ruling, they also figure something else out. Hey, we can vote ourselves into power. We can vote ourselves into money. Right? We can vote ourselves into a nice, easy living. And what happens is it eventually falls into an oligarchy. Now, that oligarchy is when a ruling elite class takes hold. And that ruling elite class has voted themselves in or been voted in, right? has come to the point where they're in power. They love that power. They don't want to give it up. Right? And they start ruling. Eventually, what this leads to is then a government that says, well, here's our ruling class and this person represents us. And then that eventually moves into tyrannical rule. That single ruler. Until what happens? The people overthrow them and it goes back into the, into the republic. And this has repeated itself over and over. You don't have to look all the way back to the time of Plato to see that he was right. right? You can see this exact thing followed in Germany. You see this exact same thing followed in Venezuela. So Rome at the time was really guarded by law. So was the Jewish faith was by law. And that's what Paul is operating under. And as part of that, you'll recognize this. 
Rome had an innocent until proven guilty for its citizens. That didn't ex- apply to slaves. And slaves were regardless of the race. There were slaves of all races there. But you were innocent until proven guilty if you were a citizen. And that's what Paul was evoking. Now, in verse 28, there's something that's very important and easily missed. And I'll hit this as we wrap up. Um, so the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Right? So he had violated the law by doing it. That verse 28, very important piece, that citizenship piece. You have to know the ways to become a Roman citizen. As as I go through this, if the worship team has a final um, song, if you want to make your way to the stage, it would be great. So there were ways to become a Roman citizen. The first was military service, and that's what the Tribune was talking about. right? If you engage and fight for the nation of Rome or the Republic of Rome, then you can become a citizen, either upon your death and then bestowed onto your family for doing that, or at the time of your honorable discharge. Next is this manumission. That's a fancy word. What does manumission mean? That's the act by which a former slave's Roman citizenship could be bought and paid for by another citizen. Right? That citizen could go out there, literally spend large sums of money, and buy you into freedom. Then the third way was by birth. Every child born from the legal marriage of two Roman citizens was given citizenship. And the fourth, an imperial grant. The emperor was able to grant citizenship to individuals or even entire provinces. And he often did it after they conquered them. So I mentioned to you at the beginning that we were going to talk about Paul's citizenship. Two are very easy to spot, right? The Jewish citizenship which gave him the opportunity for the finest education and to speak and identify with his audience. His Roman citizenship, which stopped him from being beaten and effectively silenced and allowed him to travel freely during his ministry. But did you catch the third? Paul was a citizen of heaven, of God's holy nation, and he became a citizen in a way that combined the ways in which people obtain Roman citizenship. Acts 22 shows us that Paul was now back in Jerusalem about 30 years after being on that road. His citizenship now through imperial grant. Paul, right? God chose Paul. Next, through manumission, Christ paid the heavy cost for Paul's citizenship. Birth, He was born again into a new life. His past murderous history was gone and he was a brand new person born into the citizenship of heaven. And finally, his military service. He was called into ministry, right? To fight for God and God's purposes. Faith Fellowship today, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you know Christ. If you do, you can go through this and see that impact in your life. Maybe you're here at first and the scriptures are speaking to you and you just didn't even know why you were attending this service for whatever reason. 
all four of those things are still valid. Right? If you can believe, if you're feeling that light, that illumination, like things make sense to you, it's because God ordained it, which means he chose you. Right? Christ paid for you in the manumission on that heavy cost on the cross. He invites you to be born again, and his military service calls you into ministry. So if you're here for the first time and you're ready to accept Christ, bow your head with me and I'll say a prayer. Right? You mean it in your heart, I'll say the words for you. If you've already accepted Christ, but you're going to renew your commitment as well, listen to the words of a prayer and mean it in your heart. Or if you're here just supporting someone else, right? pray these prayers with us. You and I be of like mind for that person who really needs Christ. Heavenly Father, I hear you today and it blows my mind that you would be so interested in me to know every little thing in my uh, hair on my head. Father, you know uh, how unlovely I was and you love me anyway. You know all of the bad things that I've done in my life. You know my past. Father, today I don't want to be that person anymore. Father, I want you to come into my life and illuminate it. Change me completely. Help me, starting with my heart, to just be reborn again into you. Father, I know that Christ died for me personally on that cross. He paid that price that I could not pay so that I could be free in him. And today, Father, I want him to be the Lord and master of my life. And I want to be at your service. Tell me what you would have me to do. Father, I ask these things for all who pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.